Shalom and welcome back to another episode of Israel Policy Pod. I'm Eli Koas. And I'm Evan Gottesman. So this past week has seen a number of surprising developments in Israel's relationship with Syria. The agreement to create a de-escalation zone in southwestern Syria initially assumed the eventual withdrawal of all non-Syrian forces from this part of the Syrian Arab Republic. The result of this work, which should continue as is continuing, should be a situation when representatives of the Syrian Arab Republic's army stand at Syria's border with Israel. That's Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov from a few days back saying that the Syrian government is going to be the only presence on its side of the Syria-Israel border. That implicitly means that Iranian forces would be withdrawn from the area. And this itself follows news that Israel and Russia have either reached a deal or are negotiating one that would limit the Iranian presence in southern Syria. The mobilization of Iranian troops in Syria has obviously been a major source of irritation and concern for Israel. But why do you think uh, the apparent deal with Russia is uh, surprising? It's surprising because Russia and Iran have been on the same side of the Syrian conflict. That's the side of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. The Iranians and Russians are in Syria propping up that government. And Israel has obviously been uh, striking targets associated with uh, the Assad regime uh, and associated with uh, Iran and Hezbollah who are also working in conjunction with, uh, with Assad. Exactly. And all of this comes on the heels of what happened last month, which was the most violent cross-border incident on the Syria-Israel frontier since the Yom Kippur War in 1973. That was when you had this shootout between Iranian Revolutionary Guards forces and then uh, Israel responding. Well, this is an especially timely subject, and to help us... Uh break down Israel's role in Syria, we're joined by Elizabeth Tsirkov. Elizabeth is a research fellow at the Forum for Regional Thinking, an Israeli foreign policy think tank, where she focuses on Syria. Her work has been published in Haaretz, the Jerusalem Post, War on the Rocks, The Forward, and many other outlets. She holds an MA in Middle Eastern Studies from Tel Aviv University, and is currently pursuing a master's in political science at the University of Chicago. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. So, Elizabeth, give us an overview on the Israeli outlook on Syria right now. Well, Israel, from the very first days of the uprising and then civil war in Syria, chose uh, not to clearly take any sides, um, fearing uh, that supporting the opposition uh, would actually harm it and just prefer not to uh, intervene in the war. Um, Then uh, when Russia intervened uh, directly in September 2015 and its influence uh, in the country uh, increased and this intervention coupled with uh, Iranian uh, assistance on the ground uh, completely uh, tilted the balance uh, of power in the war, Israel uh, increasingly uh, came to... Uh, realized that Russia is the main player uh, and therefore Israel must find a way to uh, achieve its goals or at least uh, protect its interests under this uh, framework uh, 
uh, in which Russia is really the dominant player. And therefore, Israel, from the very start of the Russian intervention, uh, conducted negotiations uh, with the Russians, established uh, deconfliction mechanisms that is uh, intended to prevent the shootdown of Israeli aircraft when operating uh, in Syrian airspace. And now, as the um, uh, regime uh, prepares to take over southern Syria, uh, Israel has been in uh, intense negotiations with the Russians to see how its interests uh, can be uh, protected. Do you think something has changed in the Russian calculus here? Because there's been a lot of very triumphal reporting, I think, in Israeli media. There is an editorial in Haaretz saying, uh, I think the headline was, Putin and Netanyahu were on the same side the whole time. But looking back at how the Israeli operations vis-a-vis -vis Russia were playing out just a couple months ago or, or a year ago, you would have times where the Israeli ambassador in Moscow would be summoned by the foreign ministry and uh, the Russian attitude toward Israeli operations in Syria seemed particularly acrimonious and negative. So do you think something changed in the Russian thinking that they're now uh, looking at negotiating a deal with Israel? Um, or have they really been more um, amenable to Israel's interests the whole time? I think the Russians uh, are in a tough situation in which they are trying to compel the Assad regime to uh, behave in a way that is more amenable to their interests. Uh, they would like to see some uh, reforms uh, happening in Syria, even if uh, Assad personally remains in power. Um, they would like uh, to see... Uh, support from foreign countries, from the Gulf, from European countries, from the U.S., uh, coming into Syria to finance the reconstruction. Russia cannot afford uh, to pay for this, neither can Iran uh, or China. Um, and therefore, the Russians are much more interested in having a Syria that is trying to emerge uh, out of the status of a rogue actor of a pariah state. Um, and they also want a stable uh, government in Syria, and they want a government in Syria that they can influence. And Iranian presence uh, in Syria jeopardizes all of this. Uh, Gulf states will not uh, finance uh, serious reconstruction as long as Iran uh, is present there. Uh, Iranian presence uh, in uh, Syria and their attempts to construct bases there and even carry out operations against Israel from there, as they've done uh, with the drone that they sent into uh, Israel, uh, are all uh, destabilizing to the Damascus uh, regime. And uh, they also... Um, increase Iranian influence over uh, uh, over uh, Syria. If they construct bases and remain there in the long term, this is, of course, uh, at the expense of Russia, at least the way uh, Russia is seeing it now, probably. Uh, so therefore, I think that in the past, uh, Russia uh, was... Um, definitely more prone to condemn Israeli attacks, although not do anything to to stop them, really. Uh, I mean, it has uh, air defense batteries, uh, S-300, S-400 uh, in Syria that were never operated against uh, Israeli aircraft. Uh, but in the past, Russia would occasionally condemn Israeli attacks. And now it really seems to uh, let Israel 
uh, basically hit Iran uh, as a way to uh, make the Assad regime realize that long-term Iranian presence uh, in Syria and activity against Israel from Syrian soil is destabilizing to his rule. So I, I think that right now, uh, Russians actually think that uh, these Israeli strikes are quite useful in achieving their own uh, interest in cementing their own influence uh, in Syria, uh, especially if uh, we're looking into the future and the post-conflict stage and the reconstruction stage. Uh, Russia wants to be the shot caller there uh, without uh, Iranian influence. You mentioned briefly the Iranian objectives of establishing bases in Syria and establishing a long-term presence there. But beyond, broadly speaking, the idea of enforcing greater Iranian influence, what are Iran's objectives in Syria? What are their interests for being there? Um, and how do those uh, differ from Russia's? Because they're both on the same side in terms of supporting the government of Bashar al-Assad. But as you've said, and I think is becoming increasingly apparent, they diverge beyond that broad objective. So uh, Iran's interests uh, in Syria are similar to that of Russia in the sense that the Assad regime is the only ally to these uh, Russian and uh, Persian uh, regimes uh, in the Arab world. Um, and therefore, both Russia and Iran are interested in the preservation of the Ba'ath regime uh, in uh, Syria. Uh, in addition to Iran, it's extremely important to maintain uh, the ability to transfer weapons to Hezbollah through uh, through Syrian territory to Lebanon. Um, in addition, Iran is uh, interested in uh, establishing these uh, bases and long-term presence and militia networks in Syria to be able to at least deter Israeli action uh, against it. So uh, whereas now uh, Hezbollah is kind of their uh, only tool on the front lines with, uh, with Israel, they would like to replicate this model in Syria as well. And we're seeing that through the establishment of bases, through the establishment of really large networks with tens of thousands of, of local fighters who are being recruited into militias that are run by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps. Um, so they are clearly trying to replicate this Hezbollah model in, uh, in Syria. And this is something that... Um, Russia is not comfortable with uh, for several reasons, including just competition for influence, but also uh, because uh, it is interested in uh, kind of returning Syria to uh, a state with a strong military, a strong central state, and uh, these kind of large networks of militias with tens of thousands of people who are not uh, necessarily loyal to the re Assad regime, but are loyal uh, to Iran, is something that uh, definitely undermines the central uh, state and uh, its power uh, in Syria. And the Russians, uh, of course, uh, have you know decent relations uh, with Israel. They're not interested in starting new wars with Israel, whereas Iran would like at least to have the capability to uh, increase its deterrence uh, against Israel, and possibly also use Syria as a staging ground for attacks uh, against Israel, against the Golan, um, to kind of maintain its resistance brand. Um, and 
according to uh, Iranian perception, uh, kind of continue weaken Israel with these uh, attacks, eventually possibly leading to the, the country's uh, collapse. Okay, so let's talk about that a bit more. Wanting Iran out and actually getting Iran out of uh, of Syria, especially out of southern Syria, is easier said than done, I think. Um, I don't think there's a real uh, Iranian intention to leave. Um, I mean, just yesterday there was a uh, an advisor to the chief of the armed forces, uh, Brigadier General Masoud Jazieri, who said that uh, Iranian adv- advisors are in Syria at the request of the government, and Iran and Syria have deep relations that cannot be influenced by the propaganda actions of anyone, and any agreement will only take place between Iran and Syria. And you have uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei tweeting about Israel as a malignant cancer and all these things. So it seems that Iran isn't just going to leave if Russia just says, please leave. How, how does this play out in your, in your view? So definitely Russia has uh, no way of uh, affecting kind of Iranian calculation except really um, letting Israel bomb them uh, in Syria. But what uh, Russia is uh, apparently trying to do is convince the uh, Assad regime to basically tell the Iranians, uh, no, you cannot go into southern Syria or uh, leave the country entirely, or no, I will not grant you concessions to establish a naval base, uh, additional military bases inside the country. Uh, So this is how uh, Russia is trying to tackle it. Iran definitely uh, is not going to leave Syria anytime soon. Uh, The Assad regime, its military, is way too weak to be able to hold uh, Syrian territory on its own. Uh, The Syrian army and the the Syrian militias that are operating on the side of the regime have only several uh, thousands of fighters who are really combat capable. Uh, And they overwhelmingly rely on uh, air cover from uh, both the Syrian Air Force and, more importantly, the Russian Air Force and on the presence of tens of thousands of foreign Shia uh, militiamen, jihadists, who have been brought into uh, Syria to fight on behalf of the Assad regime. And the uh, Assad knows, and the Russians know, that uh, the Iranians cannot uh, withdraw right now. Um, but what uh, Russia is seem content to, uh, to see is... Um, prevent Iranian presence in the South uh, by convincing the Assad regime not to allow uh, Iranian presence in the South so that the regime is able to retake uh, Dara and uh, Kunetra. Uh, And then in the long term, as the regime stabilizes and takes control of additional areas, then uh, to see Iranian advisors leave, uh, Iranian, the Shia militiamen that Iran uh, brought into the country leave, uh, the bases dismantled, the, the militia networks dismantled. So this, I believe, is uh, the long-term uh, hope uh, in, in, in Russia. And this is, of course, completely contrary to Iranian interests who would like to have these militias wow. remain, uh, would like to have permanent bases in Syria, and would like to have um, uh, influence in shaping post-war Syria, both its regime and economy, uh, there's also an economic competition between uh, Russia and Iran over contracts, over the few natural resources that uh, exist uh, in Syria. So jumping off of that, you brought up the militias um, that operate 
in Syria, the foreign fighters that were brought in. Um, when Israelis say that they would prefer Assad regime troops at the border to Iranian troops, what does this actually mean? Because so much of the Syrian Arab army has been depleted and, as you mentioned, replaced by foreign auxiliaries or domestic militias, but those are domestic militias that were raised and directed by Iran, like the um, the National Defense Force, for example, um, is a Syrian, you know, Syrian militia, but that's directed by and recruited by the Iranians. So, um, you know, is when we talk about a Syrian army, um, if a Syrian army returns to the border at some point, uh, how much of that army is really Syrian, and, and uh, to what extent does that really achieve Israel's objective? That's a, a very good question. Um, I think that the uh, offensive that we saw uh, several months ago that uh, ended uh, in April against Eastern Ghouta, uh, several towns uh, that were under regime siege for five years uh, on the outskirts of uh, Damascus, that offensive uh, was really uh, a Syrian offensive, at least on, on the ground. From the air, yeah, Russia provided significant assistance. And in the south, uh, you know, if, if uh, an offensive uh, uh, is to take place, Russia will, of course, uh, provide air cover and advisors on the ground uh, as well. Um, so the, the Assad uh, regime is still very weak. Its military is very weak, and local militias are... Uh, also not uh, extremely uh, uh, combat capable, but they've shown their ability to advance uh, in Eastern Ghouta and take control of those territories with Russian assistance. And this, I believe, is something that Russia would like to replicate in the South. Basically, um, mostly uh, Syrians on the ground supported uh, by Russia. Um, it is true that... Um, the, the way militias uh, in Syria have been structured, uh, they are often uh, both supported and trained by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps and at the same time technically part of the Syrian military or uh, d different branches of the um, the police state, uh, 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 military security, military intelligence, all sorts of uh, branches like that. Uh, but... Um, while it is murky, uh, it is definitely possible to say that, for example, the offensive in eastern Ghouta was overwhelmingly Syrian, whereas uh, the offensive on Aleppo was actually led by Shia militiamen, Shia foreign fighters, just because of the uh, poor capabilities of uh, Syria's uh, own forces. Um, so I think that if uh, the... Uh, regime does not encounter uh, significant opposition in the south, um, it will be able to take over these areas on its own with uh, Russian support. The question is really whether uh, there will be much resistance from the side of the rebels, uh, because the regime has had time to infiltrate uh, these rebel groups. Uh, it, it has had time to uh, affect the willingness of communities in the South to resist the regime. People understand that the regime is winning. 
um, they are no longer hoping really to see the regime topple. What, uh, in my conversations with people in Syria, in the South, they're basically hoping for some kind of a federal solution in which they will be just left alone to govern their own affairs without the return of the regime. Um, and there's not um, a lot of willingness to continue fighting because people realize that the, the regime is going to win no matter what. On the other hand, the rebel groups uh, in the South are well-armed. Uh, they uh, still possess a lot of weapons, a lot of uh, ammunition from the time they were supported by the uh, secret operations room run out of Amman under the direction of the CIA, uh, the uh, mock room, as it is known, uh, military operations command room. Uh, so they, if they decide to fight, it will definitely be challenging uh, for the regime. But there are a lot of signs that local communities are very tired of the war, that many of the factions have been infiltrated by the regime. Uh, and therefore, it's quite possible that uh, many factions will simply choose to reconcile, basically to surrender to the regime rather than fight. And in such a situation, uh, it will definitely be uh, possible for the regime to make significant advances, uh, especially with the Russian air cover and take over the South uh, on its own. So it really depends on several factors that are still unknown, uh, kind of the level of uh, resistance that the regime uh, will encounter in the South. Very interesting. Um, so Israel has provided quite a bit of medical and other humanitarian assistance to Syrians located near the border. How is this impacted by the Iranian presence? And is it really just humanitarian aid? Yeah, so, yeah, so um, Israel, Israel has provided uh, medical care for thousands of Syrians, uh, really high quality medical care, identical to the care that Israeli citizens would receive. Uh, so, for example, if a person has a severe uh, injury to his limb, uh, doctors will make uh, multiple operations to try and save that limb rather than just cut it off, which is what is done in Jordan and, of course, inside uh, Syria in uh, both opposition-held areas and in regime-held areas because the medical care is not as good. Um, and this has had um, significant impact on the way Israel is perceived in the south uh, of Syria and also in Syria in general. People are very aware of this um, humanitarian operation. Uh, in addition, Israel has also provided uh, humanitarian assistance, tons of... Um, uh, food, diapers, uh, baby formula, medicine, medical equipment uh, to southern Syria. A lot of it, by the way, not actually financed by the Israeli government, but by uh, Christian donors from the United States, uh, Zionists who want to help uh, Israel uh, improve its uh, image. And this has definitely worked. Um, people are in the south are very grateful to Israel uh, to the point where people adopt uh, positive attitudes towards Israel that I think are honestly a bit misguided in the sense that uh, they begin to believe that Israel is on their side, is, is interested in toppling the Assad regime, is a, a country based on humanitarian principles, as opposed to a country like any other country that is, you know, intervening in Syria to um, advance its own interests. 
Um, now, Israel has been very open about uh, uh, the humanitarian operation uh, taking place in southern Syria, uh, but it is also providing uh, military assistance. It has been providing military assistance uh, to factions in Syria uh, from at least 2014, possibly even uh, earlier. Um, and uh, last year, as Israel became uh, kind of more concerned with uh, Iranian presence uh, in uh, in Syria uh, and Hezbollah presence there, uh, Israel increased the assistance that uh, the military assistance and the humanitarian assistance that it provides to the uh, area abutting the fence along the Golan, uh, basically in an effort to uh, protect the border area uh, from uh, the arrival of regime's force of the forces of the regime and Iranian forces um, and also it uh, provides assistance to factions that are fighting uh, the local ISIS affiliate uh, Jish Khaled um, along uh, the border with Jordan uh, and the fence uh, on the Golan uh, basically in an effort to um, uh, destroy uh, ISIS uh, in this area and allow the rebels to take over this territory. Uh, this assistance, uh, in addition to weapons, salaries uh, to fighters uh, in these factions, uh, also includes uh, military assistance, uh, basically uh, support from the air, both with drone strikes uh, and uh, precise uh, missile strikes that have killed uh, dozens of ISIS fighters and uh, commanders in that region. Uh, unfortunately, uh, due in part to uh, low morale, low fighting capability and corruption on the side of the rebels, they've not uh, been able or not been interested in uh, exploiting this Israeli assistance. And prior to that, assistance of the mock assistance of the CIA coming from Jordan to actually uh, defeat ISIS uh, in this region. Uh, so there's been no progress uh, from the side of the rebels uh, for the past uh, three years uh, against uh, ISIS in this region. Uh, they continue to control uh, this territory, uh, the Yarmouk Basin and a few uh, villages um, and towns to the east of the Yarmouk Basin. And there hasn't been any progress in the uh, fight against ISIS in that area. So there was a report on Israeli TV on uh, Khan uh, Channel uh, Channel One about how uh, how the Assad government will treat uh, those people that live in the area near the border uh, that haven't interacted with Israel. Can you tell us a bit more about what we can expect? Yeah. So so this this is a very very troubling question, and uh, to be honest, it is the one that. Um, uh, literally keeps me up at night uh, because, uh, and I know that it also worries the IDF uh, a great deal. There are basically thousands of people on the Syrian side who um, either uh, cooperated with Israel's humanitarian efforts, so it would be local councils, NGOs that receive assistance uh, from Israel, and there are also thousands of fighters and factions supported by Israel uh, who... Um, you know, are deemed by the regime to be collaborators with the enemy, uh, traitors. Um, and therefore, um, it is uh, um, very, the prospect of the regime returning to those areas uh, is uh, 
highly concerning to 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 these people. I mean, their lives are really uh, a jeopardy here. Uh, the the report in Cannes said that um, uh, the IDF is worried that these people will be massacred, that they will be lynched. Uh, this is definitely a possibility. Uh, if the regime has uh, access to these individuals, their lives will definitely be at risk. Uh, one of the issues that is currently being negotiated with Russia is uh, the issue of these uh, border uh, villages in which uh, most of the people who collaborate with Israel uh, reside. Um, and it is possible that uh, similarly to a deal that was reached uh, in the town of Beijan, in which there was also a faction and a commander who uh, collaborated with Israel for a long time, Yad Moro, uh, he is... Um, uh, the regime attempted to assassinate him, and he is basically a prisoner in Beijing. He cannot uh, live the, leave the area out of fear for his life. Uh, but as long as he is in Beijing, uh, because uh, regime forces, the, the regime's military, has not entered the area, he appears to be uh, safe for the time being. Um, so Israel needs to, if it wants to protect these individuals who work with Israel, uh, and develop you know, close relations and, and also uh, really develop these expectations from Israel for protection uh, and continued assistance. Um, if it wants to prevent harm uh, to these people, it needs to reach some kind of an agreement that will prevent the regime from fully recapturing those areas. So this could be either by introducing uh, UN peacekeepers into the area or only allowing, uh, let's say, the regime's police or only certain forces to enter the area, or uh, there's even talk about uh, sending Russian troops into the area. Um, so uh, there needs to be uh, some arrangement made to protect these individuals, unless is Israel is interested in seeing basically people uh, that it is worth with uh, to see them jailed, massacred, uh, assassinated, uh, this is something that Israel uh, definitely uh, needs to, to, to take care of to ensure the security uh, of these individuals. And if Israel were looking to achieve some kind of deal like that to protect people in southern Syria, that would probably have to go through, through the Russians, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Israel is not in direct contact with the Iranians or with the regime. Um, and Israel would need to work with the Russians to to arrange for this uh, kind of a deal. Israel, of course, could also uh, allow these people and their relatives to come into Israel and seek uh, refuge here, uh, as it is done with the uh, southern Lebanon army uh, in 2000, uh, when they and their uh, fighters and their families uh, were welcomed uh, in uh, Israel. I don't see that happening. Um, uh, this time, uh, for several reasons, uh, one of them being the fact that this assistance is covert, uh, and therefore the Israeli public is largely unaware of this fact, whereas uh, the South Lebanon army was a known uh, entity that Israelis were aware of, were aware of the sacrifices that, you know, these uh, Christian militiamen made uh, uh, to protect Israel's borders, whereas in the Syrian case, uh, this assistance is largely unknown to the Israeli public, and therefore it would be very difficult to justify uh, to uh, the Israeli public, why are you suddenly receiving these thousands of people?
Do you think with also just all that's been going on with the, the domestic um, vitriol around the asylum seekers from, from Africa and North Africa, that that would just be like a domestic non-starter to bring in Arab refugees? Like, unfortunately, you know, I, I think it would be... Yeah, that's, that's absolutely another reason. I mean, most of the asylum seekers residing in Israel uh, right now are Christians from Eritrea. Uh, and there's so much opposition to their presence and so much uh, uh, abusive policies implemented against them to coerce them to, to leave Israel or, and even try to forcibly deport them uh, to Rwanda and Uganda, countries to which they have uh, no connection. Uh, so here you would have thousands of Arabs, Sunni, Muslims coming into Israel. This is definitely something that uh, Israeli politicians would have a hard time justifying. Uh, so I just don't see that happening. And therefore, uh, if Israel is not going to allow these people to enter uh, Israel, uh, and it's not, um, and it's not uh, going to uh, continue supporting these factions and maintaining the current status quo, uh, if it is going to allow the regime to return to, to the South, um, I think the, the moral obligation would be to, to find a way to protect these individuals and their relatives uh, from uh, retribution. So, cycling over to the Israeli side of the border for a moment, um, there's a plan that's now in discussion uh, to boost the population of the Israeli-controlled section of the Golan from the current numbers around 20,000 up to 100,000 over the next decade. And, um, you know, um, some Israeli politicians, um, both in the government and Yair Lapid also, uh, have been doubling down on asking other countries, specifically the United States, to recognize Israeli control of the Golan. Is this in any way related to the... Um, is this effort to cement Israel's long-term presence in the Golan in any way related to the Iranian presence on the other side of the border... And to what extent does it depend, if it depends at all, on the state of the negotiations with Russia over the future of who's going to be on the other side of that border? I think the two issues are related in the sense that uh, both the offensive in southern Syria, uh, the upcoming offensive, and the uh, efforts to uh, cement uh, uh, Israeli control and uh, gain recognition for the illegal annexation of the Golan, uh, are connected to the fact that we're now in the final stages of the war in Syria. And basically, all countries uh, intervening in Syria are attempting to secure their interest and shape the reality uh, of the kind of post-conflict stage. Uh, so you see it, for example, with Turkey going into uh, Syria and creating these kind of buffer zones, uh, you see it now with Jordan and Israel trying to negotiate a, an arrangement for southern Syria that would not threaten their interests. And you see it with Israel, you know, constantly trying throughout uh, the war to uh, kind of gain international recognition for, for the annexation uh, of the Golan, which is uh, illegal under international law and therefore not recognized by any country. Uh, so uh, Israel... Um, uh, on, on top of uh, kind of diplomatic efforts to achieve this, you now 
uh, see this attempt to increase the number of settlers uh, in the in the Golan. Uh, Israel will not likely gain uh, significant recognition for the annexation of the Golan because of the international norms against uh, annexation. We saw it recently in Crimea. Russia is con continues to suffer on the effects of the sanctions levied against it due to the illegal annexation of Crimea. Um, so Israel will not gain significant recognition for this annexation. On the other hand, the reality is that no one is going to pressure Israel to negotiate with the Assad regime to return the Golan to Syria in decades to come. I mean, it just doesn't seem uh, to to make any sense. The, the Syria is destroyed. The Assad regime completely lost uh, whatever legitimacy it had. Um, so Israel... Uh, even without this uh, official recognition, in reality, uh, all countries, uh, uh, all major players, at least in Europe and the U.S., recognize that uh, no negotiations are uh, likely to happen in the future. Uh, and therefore, Israel can feel quite secure in, uh, you know, increasing the number of settlers and uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, making its hold uh, on the Golan, Golan Heights uh, kind of more permanent. Not to mention the uh, the Israeli public, which obviously after the, the unilateral, the, the Gaza withdrawal, just giving up territory that seems so, so un, unstable, uh, just I think it would be almost, I mean, not thinkable for, I think, decades, uh, decades to come. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And even uh, I personally, as a person who uh, opposes occupation and annexation violations of international law, I mean, you have uh, individuals on the on the Golan who now reside as these kind of second class subjects in a state that is relatively democratic. And would it be the right thing from a moral point of view to even, uh, you know, uh, send them to a country that, uh, you know, uh, tortures people in, in mass, uh, carries out such grave human rights violations. So it, it's really a question now that I, I honestly don't think any pressure is forthcoming on Israel to negotiate uh, the return of the Golan to Syria, at least as long as the current Ba'ath regime remains in power. No, and I, I agree with you. And I, I think also, you know, the 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 peace process on the Palestinian issue in the West Bank is kind of moribund, but if there's any progress to be made, I think certainly the center-left parties in Israel can always gain some credibility. I think Lapid may even be doing this by supporting Israeli control of the Golan, because even if it's not recognized internationally, and even if technically it doesn't conform to international norms for them to control territory that they seize by force, like you said, no one's going to be pressuring them to give it up. And it's not worth risking credibility with the Israeli public when there's much, you know, the much bigger issue, um, you know, with the conflict and occupation in the West Bank than, than the Golan, which is, uh, you know, as I understand, like a non-issue with the Israeli public for the most part. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Israelis uh, have seen the sights of... Uh, uh, of the past, uh, you know, seven years, the horrors coming out of Syria. They know that the regime uh, in Damascus is incredibly brutal. So even people who may have once supported, uh, you know, giving back the Golan now 
have a lot of problems with having peaceful relations, uh, having a peace uh, accord with uh, such a, a brutal dictatorship. And on top of that, in the past, you had the IDF really pushing for a peace agreement uh, with Syria before the, the uprising uh, and then war started uh, because they wanted to neutralize kind of the, the Syrian front. They wanted not to have to worry to deal with uh, this uh, the Syrian military and its stockpiles of chemical weapons. Uh, whereas now, basically throughout this war, uh, the Syrian army has been largely destroyed. Most of the stockpiles of chemical weapons also have been uh, destroyed in uh, 2013. Um, so, so therefore, there's no internal pressure from the Israeli public or the Israeli establishment to negotiate with the Syrians in any way. So the, the, the occupation of the Golan is definitely uh, uh, going to uh, continue uh, to persist uh, for decades to come unless some sudden change happens uh, in Damascus, something unexpected. Elizabeth, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's been a very interesting conversation, and uh, your expertise of what's going on in Syria is, is very helpful to help us understand what's, uh, what's happening there. Thank you. It's my pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can learn more about Israel Policy Forum's work at www.israelpolicyforum.org and follow us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Telegram. 